0: This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, which one commentator uh, has said, and I agree, may very well be the single most influential document ever written in the history of the world. And when we consider the influence that Paul's letter to the Romans has had in the early centuries, for example... Aurelius Augustinus, whom we know now as St. Augustine, was converted miraculously, supernaturally, fully, thoroughly, marvelously converted as he read a portion of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it was he who relayed the foundations of the Christian faith in Western civilization as the Roman Empire was crumbling in the 5th century. Martin Luther rediscovered the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in the 16th century. And then following from that of course the work of the other reformers such as John Calvin and then John Wesley in Britain and uh, the impact therefore uh, that it had upon the early colonies of what is now the United States of America. It also had a tremendous impact af- in the 20th century after the devastation of World War I. Uh, revealing again uh, the the sinful depravity of humanity after a season in which there had been uh, a lot of hope put in the essential goodness of humanity. Still today, because it is the abiding word of God, Romans speaks to us in the 21st century in America, proclaiming the glorious gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, into the midst of the moral crisis and spiritual confusion and theological apostasy of our day as though it were written in this morning's newspaper. So here we go in a sermon series through Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, I don't know how long this is going to take. It's going to take a while, and we're going to take our time. And if I don't live long enough to finish this series, I am quite sure that Pastor uh, Jonathan is quite able to just pick up right ever, wherever I drop off. So um, I want to encourage you. Tune in. I want you to get on board. I want us to be together in this. I want you to be committed to this. I want you to get a fresh notebook and a new pen. And I want you to commit yourself to grow in the grace of, and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as we hear God's word from Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, these sermons are going to be on the Internet, and for that reason, I want to say right here at the outset, I want to acknowledge my use of various scholars um, upon whom I'm dependent. I'm standing on the shoulders of um, good, good scholars and preachers. Uh, for example, John Stott's commentary on Romans, Thomas Schreiner's commentary, John Murray, R.C. Sproul, John Piper's audios sermons uh, through ser- uh, Romans on DesiringGod.org. Jonathan and I can help get these resources into your hands and tell you more about it. I want to acknowledge that at the, at the outset because I'm not going to clutter the preaching with a lot of uh, you know quotation, direct quotations, and citations, but just. I'm acknowledging freely and openly that I am certainly standing on the shoulders of um, God's servants who have gone before me in this. Um, Now, we cannot do this on our own, of course. We never can. We must have the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and God's work of grace in our own hearts and minds in order to rightly receive and believe and respond to his word in faith. And so now let us pray. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you will fall afresh upon us and open our minds spiritually. Illumine our minds that we may understand with spiritual wisdom and discernment the word of the living God. Open our hearts. Make us ready, eager, and receptive to your word. And we pray, O Lord, that you will strengthen our souls, and transform our lives. That we be no longer conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the truth of your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1. Paul through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Now we might be inclined to pass over the opening introductory greetings of a letter, but not so fast. These introductory verses of Paul's letter to the Romans are laden, packed with important content. Here we go. Let's dig in. Paul. That's the name by which he became known after the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him from heaven while he was on the road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus called him to be an apostle. He had been born Saul of Tarsus, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a blameless Pharisee, and a persecutor of the church. He was on his way to Damascus in order to persecute the Christians there. And Jesus intervened from heaven and saved this murderer by his grace for his glory. And Saul's Jewish name was changed and became more fitting for his apostleship to the Gentiles and the Gentiles' world to the name Paul. But really, most importantly, Saul's name had been changed because his life had been changed by God. You remember Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, and Saul became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a better translation would be a bond servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, it is an identity of complete Submission, an identity completely defined by the one to whom he belongs, the one who has bought him, Christ Jesus. From the outset, Paul introduces himself but says, in effect, he has no identity in and of himself. He is identified and defined only as a slave of Christ Jesus. He is a man who has been bought by another and who therefore belongs to another, who is therefore in the service of another. Christ Jesus. To whom do you belong? Who owns your body? Who owns your money? Who owns your time? Who owns all the rights to everything in and about your life? Can you say this today from your heart? My only comfort is that I belong Body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him because I've been bought by his blood. That's an expression of not only utter humility, but also unshakable comfort And infinite joy for it is the humility of a slave who has been bought. But bought not merely, not by merely an ordinary man. But by the king who was crucified and has been raised from the dead. So it was for the apostle Paul and so it is for all who live by faith in Christ Jesus. Christ, Jesus. Now, push the pause button and think about this. Come on and think about it. This is Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. Who was the king? Caesar? Nero? the emperor of the empire, the human embodiment of the glory and power of Rome. We get the word czar from the title Caesar. Well, it's no accident that Paul, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, chose to identify the true king, the real king in this way, Christ Jesus, King Jesus. Of course, the term Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew title, Messiah, the Anointed One, the divine human king. And there lies the countercultural punch at the outset of this letter. The truth king is Christ Jesus. What would it have been like to have been a first century Christian living in Rome, living in the shadow of Nero's throne, yet living by faith in another king? It bespeaks the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Who do you believe rules the world today? Christ Jesus, a Jew whose name means Savior, but was crucified on a Roman cross. And it was on that Roman cross that Jesus of Nazareth bought Saul of Tarsus with his own blood. Though it was some years later that Christ Jesus from heaven called this murderer of Christians to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as not only having been bought by Christ Jesus, but also called by Christ Jesus. This is the effectual, effective, saving, sovereign call of God. It is a call heard not with the ears, but with the heart. And when God in His grace calls a person, God by His sovereign power also enables that person, you... Not only to hear that call, but also to respond to that call. Indeed, God Himself, by His own grace and power, makes His call effective in the lives of His elect people. The word called is a word which, throughout the Bible, overflows with the sovereign, saving, powerful, effective grace of God. In Jesus Christ. Now, in this phrase right here, verse 1, halfway through verse 1, Paul says that he was called to be an apostle. So that has reference to a specific, particular calling and office that of apostleship. But but necessarily implicit, included in that call, first of all, is the fact that Saul of Tarsus was called out of spiritual darkness into the light of Jesus Christ, called out of his self-righteousness into the righteousness of Jesus Christ, called out of spiritual death into everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is in that sense, the effectual, life-giving, regenerating, converting call of God, that Paul also uses the word called in verses six and seven. If you look there, when he refers to the Christians in Rome, and therefore to all believers everywhere today, as those who are called by God to belong to Jesus Christ and who are loved by God and called to be saints. What does it mean to be called by God? Again, not referring here to a particular office or task, but called in the sense of being called to belong to Jesus Christ, called to be a member of God's Holy People, his saints, his new covenant Israel, called out of darkness into light, called out of condemnation into reconciliation with God. The shorter catechism, one of our doctrinal standards based on scripture, says this effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. What's the point here? The point is, is that Salvation is not something that you do for yourself. It is the work of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and misery. And convinces us of our need for a Savior. Your natural mind isn't going to do that for you. Or for me. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds, turns the light on so that we can, oh, oh, see Jesus Christ. See that He is the Savior we desperately need. And the Holy Spirit renews our wills. That is, our will is not truly free until it is set free and made new by the Holy Spirit. Because up until that point, our will is in bondage to our sinful nature. And in bondage to our sinful nature, our will will always be inclined to sin against God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit sets our wills free from the bondage of our sinful nature, so that we may and freely will turn to Jesus Christ in faith and love. The Holy Spirit persuades. That's an amazing statement. The Holy Spirit of God himself pursues us, woos us, draws us, and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That's Real conversion. This is the effectual call of God. This is what took place in the life of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. This is what Martin Luther experienced as he studied the letter to the Romans and then suddenly felt as though he had been, as he wrote, born again and the gates of paradise had been flung wide open for him. And this, the effectual call of God, is what takes place in the life of every true Christian. It's not about being a nice person. It's about being a new person. It's about being a new person called by Christ Jesus out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that is the reason that I'm getting ahead of myself now down in verses 6 and 7. Paul refers to believers in Christ as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Who are loved by God and called to be saints. Called to be his holy community of people. Called. This is what we pray for here in covenant every Sunday that if there's anyone here who is not yet a true believer in Jesus Christ, not yet a slave, a willing slave of Jesus Christ, that God in his free grace and rich mercy and sovereign power would be pleased for his own glory to effectually call that person out of darkness into his light by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you pray for that? Fervently, Do you want to see the supernatural power of God at work? That's a work of God's supernatural power. Now, back to verse 1, and you really are wondering how long it's going to take us to get through Romans. <laughs> Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. The word apostle literally means one who is sent meaning one who is sent, commissioned to deliver a message with the authority of the sender. The office of the apostle was a first century office for the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. The apostles had seen Christ Jesus risen from the dead and had been specifically chosen and appointed called by Christ to speak, listen, with his authority and therefore to write the inspired, inerrant scriptures of the New Testament. The New Testament is the apostolic foundation of the church under the authority of Jesus Christ. So now here's the point. Don't you ever Don't you ever let anyone tell you, as they will, in a college classroom, in an editorial in the newspaper, or on some, you know, TV documentary. Don't you ever let anyone tell you that Jesus taught one thing but that Paul taught another. Or that the teaching of Paul, well, it it doesn't count as much as the teaching of Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, was commissioned by Christ Jesus to speak and to write the word of God with the authority of Jesus Christ that's what the letter to the romans is as is all the other as are all the other letters of the new testament it is the word of christ jesus to us today through the pen of the apostle paul by the author, by the inspiration of the holy spirit by the authority of Jesus Christ. Paul continues by saying that he was set apart for the gospel of God. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says that he was quote set apart before he was born. Galatians 1:15. What does that tell us? Paul's apostleship wasn't his idea. It was his God-ordained destiny and purpose. Now think about it. In this very first verse, Paul tells us what? He's been bought, called, and set apart. All of those verbs are passive, telling us something that has happened to him through the actions of another. Paul is not simply telling us about Himself, introducing Himself to us. He's telling us about God. The God of sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, sovereign power who saves sinners, who even saves a man who was on his way to Damascus, quote, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in order to bring them back and imprison them in Jerusalem. Now look, do you have confidence in the power of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners like that? Do you have confidence in the power of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you? And are you as astounded about your salvation as the Apostle Paul was about his own, bought, called, set apart, Which raises the questions. Who is the most important person in your life? Who is it who gives you your identity and purpose? Is your life about you? Or is it about the one who bought you? called you, and set you apart for his own glory. Still in verse 1, but moving quickly to verse (laughs) 2. Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. The word gospel literally means good news. Paul refers to it as the gospel of God because this good news has its origin in. It comes from God himself, God the creator of heaven. Think of this astounding declaration, the gospel of God. God the creator of heaven and earth, the righteous judge of all mankind is the author of this good news. It originates in him, it comes from him. Now we may take this for granted, but please think about what this means. Think about it. The gospel of God is not the product of human philosophy. No human being thought this up. The gospel of God did not arise out of the innate human spirit or as a result of spiritual speculation based on the religious inclinations that are deeply embedded in human consciousness. Uh-uh. No. The gospel of God is not a compilation of human religious wisdom and insight. The gospel of God is divine revelation. And as we will see, Lord willing, as we work through Romans, no human mind ever would have or could have thought up the way of salvation which is revealed in the gospel of God To which Paul also refers as the gospel of his son because his son, Jesus Christ, is the substance and the content of the gospel. The good news is about him and it comes to us through him and it comes from God the Father, the author and origin of this good news. This good news of God, however, was not something new in the mind of God, but rather was His plan of salvation from all eternity. And, as Paul says, was promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. Indeed, beginning in Genesis 3.15 with the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. With Abraham offering up his only beloved son, Isaac, but being provided with a sacrificial ram as a substitute. In the promise that a descendant of David would sit upon the throne forever. That the Messiah, the son of David, would be born in Bethlehem. That... Through the prophet Isaiah was prophesied the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel and that the Messiah then would be despised and rejected by men, be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and on and on it goes. From Genesis through Malachi. Malachi. When Paul says that God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he is firmly establishing the fact that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God given to Old Testament Israel. In other words, Christian faith is not something totally new and different and distinct from the true faith of Old Testament Israel. Rather, it is the full completion. It is the full revelation. It is the full bloom of the flower, if you will, of all that God promised in the Old Testament. And all of that which God promised in the Old Testament was concerning His Son. There at the beginning of verse 3. Okay, we're coming to the end. But note this, first of all. Note it, first of all, Paul refers to Christ Jesus as God's Son. That is a reference to his eternal, divine nature. It is the first identity of Jesus, his Son. Then, says Paul, now watch how the logic flows. See it. See it right there in the book. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Got it? God's eternal son, with his divine nature, came into the world, taking upon himself a human nature as a descendant of David. The union of the two natures of Jesus Christ, divine and human, is front and center right here in verse 3. Now, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul put it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. God's Son, a descendant of David. There's the gospel of God. There's the gospel of God. God himself did something which only God could do to save sinners from his wrath. Only a sinless man could pay the penalty for human sin and offer up his life as a substitute for sinners. But only God could overcome death so that the sacrificial substitute could also be the everlasting Savior. And the gospel of God is God and man perfectly united in Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to do for us only what God himself could do. And all you who place your faith in the divine man, Jesus Christ, and reckon yourselves to be slaves of Christ Jesus, You have the promise of the gospel of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in our lives so to renew and transform us that we might become more nearly conformed to your Son and live for your glory all the days of our life and even throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In response to the gospel of God, let us stand to affirm our faith as we Read responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism, number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Amen.